I'm going to comment on the announcements. Um, Jeremy, you did a great job, by the way, on the announcements. That's my first comment. <laughs> my second one was, while I do believe the Bible has preeminence in our life um, and that we want to, it is the ultimate rule for all that we do and all that we know, everything in it contains everything we need for life and salvation, I was one that made the argument when we do our summer Bible study that it begins with bacon and Bible and biscuits. So <laughs> I made that argument and I felt like I won because we did. And so uh, I'm really excited about that opportunity um, just, to, just to know that there's a why behind everything we do as well. And the card on your, your table knows because sometimes you may think that you know, if we're not doing Wednesday night, we're not doing anything. But, man, our schedule is full this summer in every aspect, in every place. And what, what uh, you know, Wednesday night's a tough animal because if we don't have children, then parents with children have no place to go if they come. And if you don't, so you, it's kind of a, a one big thing, you know. And so it allows us to give our volunteers who worked and allows it to give them time. And summer's just a crazy summer. A lot of the ministry staff from vacations to traveling to conferences and other things going on. It's just easier for us to do it this way. We'll kick back up on our Wednesday night stuff as, uh, at the end of the summer, starting back up in August, and it'll be exciting, and we'll pick right up where we left off here in Genesis 3. Um, <laughs> we got three weeks left, but there's a lot left in Genesis 3, guys. So uh, we'll, we'll do that, but, but um, we're excited about that, and I'm excited about all the opportunities going on in our church this summer. And let me encourage you to uh, consider helping out with VBS more than anything else. Continue to pray for those, for those, those, those opportunities. Um, I, I, I just wholeheartedly agree. I was so thankful, again, reminded. I've just been here a couple weeks, but uh, as, we, as we go into Boston, it was just such a wonderful uh, privilege to hear so many talk about how Taylor's has invested there and been a part of that. So it's a, it's a good, good legacy and a good story of how Taylor's was faithful to give and now the Lord is using that and prospering them there. But how great the need is as well. We went to one church that's actually running about 800 people now in, in that greater Boston area. But that, that pastor said, you know, we could be the largest church times 10 in the country uh, and run 100,000 people and Massachusetts would still be the number one unreached state in our United States. So it's just a great need there. And that's why he was, his point was one church can't do this. We need as many churches as possible reaching them. And a kingdom vision like that is what we want to be a part of. I believe at Taylor. So we'll continue, continue to do that. I'm thankful, very thankful for the last two weeks to have Dr. Walter Johnson here. Um, Dr. J is a tremendous blessing to us here in the upstate, having been one of the first hires uh, in, in the early 90s uh, at North Greenville when North Greenville decided to go to a four-year institution. And so he's been there 30 years, 30 years now at North Greenville. Um, when I look around the state amongst pastors in our state, I was at a meeting today in Columbia at the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and just looking around that room, it's hard to describe how many North Greenville grads are in that room and in places of leadership around our state. They're everywhere. 
And every single one of them would give testimony to what Dr. Johnson meant to them in their life and in their studies and in their guidance. So I was thrilled. He was thrilled to be here. Um, I didn't even have to ask twice, you know. And uh, he was thrilled to be here and to, to do it. And I will give you a little word of testimony about him, what he means to me. I, uh, I hesitate to tell y'all everything about me because you might not like me in the end. But <laughs> when I went out of high school, all I ever wanted to do was play basketball. And so I got a basketball scholarship, and that was the end of it for me. Great. I didn't realize that when you had a basketball scholarship in college, that you had to go to class. That was actually part of it. <laughs> so my first semester at my school when I was playing, there was a little small, it was a school in North Georgia. My first semester there, I finished uh, with a .7 GPA. <laughs> and that's with a B plus in algebra because somebody helped me. <laughs> and let me tell you how you get a .7. You just don't go. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but by the end, and, and the Lord used all of that in my life because at the end of that first semester, I was miserable. And basketball just became something I didn't even want to do that anymore. And the Lord was working on me and my heart, just showing Josh, you're trusting in things in this world that's not going to help you. And they're not going to really bring you joy and satisfaction. You've been trying for this forever, and it's not enough, you know. And so I left. I quit, came home, and I'm, some of you may have known, may have said this before, I worked at Blockbuster Video. <laughs> y'all know Blockbuster Video? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure y'all knew. I knew, I thought this crowd would know Blockbuster Video. <laughs> now, if, if I walked down the hall to the student ministry and said, I worked at Blockbuster Video, they'd be like, what? Okay. <laughs> so I worked there. It was in that summer that the Lord called me into the ministry. And just kind of said, this is what you're supposed to do, 1994. I came to North Greenville, and I was happy and ready to serve the Lord. But school and working in school had not uh, kicked in yet. And so at the end of my second semester, Walter Johnson calls me in his office. And he says, here's what I need you to do, Josh. I need you to quit. <laughs> And y'all saw Dr. J last week. You could see how it, you could almost see his mannerisms. Once you see, you know, once you spend a couple hours with Dr. J lecturing, you can, you, I'm sure all of y'all tried to imitate it. And so you, I want you to quit or get serious and recognize that everything you do, you should do for the glory of God. And something in me, and I don't tell you this for any other reason because it's, it's, it wasn't that, that terribly hard, but something in me said, I am never going to make anything less than an A again, Dr. Johnson. You're going to regret those words telling me to quit. And I didn't. And every semester through my seminary days, I called Dr. J and said, guess what, Dr. J? Did it again. And looking back, my response to him was, I'm going to you know, show him I can do it. But he got exactly what he wanted out of me as well. And he really helped me in more ways than you can possibly imagine, just challenging me to be the best that I can be and use all the gifts that God's given me in those. So he means the world to Allison and I. Really thankful that if you didn't get to know him, you got to see him and meet him next week. And I hope it's not the last time that he's able to come. And next time, hopefully I'll be here with him. But what he does too, I mean, I called him the first time uh, that first week, like with two days notice, can you do this? And it was yes. And you can see he has just spent his lifetime 
helping people like me understand how the Bible affects everything going on around us in our worldview, how this answers life's ultimate questions and why this matters. And that's what I was uh, wanting him to convey to you guys, to take the word of God and see how God's word works as a whole to teach us and show us, you know, what is most important in life and how it answers all of these questions. And then also to show how all of these other worldviews try to answer those questions, but they fall short every single time. They can't answer life's ultimate questions. Only Christianity can. And so God is faithful to give us uh, wonderful leaders and teachers like Dr. Johnson. I'm thankful that he was able to be here. So um, with that said, I listened, and, and he didn't get to the Bible until the very end of the second time. So I, I critiqued him on that. And we'll get here now. And so when I finished last time, we had gotten to the end there of Genesis 3, really verse 13. Um, Adam and Eve had uh, sinned, and we saw the anatomy of sin and how the original sin here with Adam and Eve really looks like always all of our sin, how it is an idea that we know better than God. We are smarter than him. We know what's best for us. He doesn't. And so his rules, his standards are set aside. And, 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 and even though he's the creator and he gets to make the rules, his creation rebelled against him. And turn against him. And so there's immediate consequences for that. And we saw that in verse 7 of chapter 3. As soon as Adam and Eve ate, it says immediately their eyes of both were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately guilt comes. Immediately they understand their sinfulness. Immediately they try to cover it up and find a solution for it. They see their nakedness. They see their guilt. And immediately they're trying, just like Dr. Johnson was saying, they're trying to find a solution for their guilt. Let's cover it. Let's do what we can. Because they recognized that they were inappropriate. You see, the garden was where God dwelt with his people. It's where God would come and walk with them and dwell with them together. It's where they would meet God. And so as they know God is coming here, we've got to get ourselves appropriate now to meet him. And so they sow fig leaves. And no matter how nice the fig leaves were, no matter how nice the designer leaves were that they chose, it wasn't enough. They couldn't cover themselves. They couldn't hide themselves. And so the Lord comes and not just because he, it's not because he didn't know where they were, he asked this question. And he lets them, almost puts them on trial here in that next uh, paragraph in chapter 3. Puts them on trial to say, where are you? What have you done? What is going on? And then he demonstrates that their sinfulness is even deeper than just eating that once. Now they're looking to cover it with fig leaves, with blaming others, putting it off on somebody else. Not my fault, the woman you gave me, Lord. And that's how it works. And so we see how sin enters in, devastation occurs immediately, and man is quickly trying to figure out how to cover it up, how to answer it. What's the solution? What's the solution? And so the Lord then, after Adam and Eve speak to him, remember what Eve's thing, he goes to Adam first. What happens? The woman you gave me, he blames Eve. He goes to Eve. What happened? It was the serpent 
And so immediately the Lord turns to this serpent and he curses the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So he shows that this serpent now will demonstrate in this, this way with this curse that you will always be trying to find satisfaction and you won't. You're going to eat dirt for the rest of your life. You're going to crawl around on your belly for the rest of your life. And so he does this to demonstrate even the serpent himself, Satan, is always looking for satisfaction and we'll never find it. You see, it's the very nature of who Satan is himself. And we'll look at that a little bit there in, in Revelation 12 and other places, that what he's trying to do is he knows, even now, if I could put it in our context, he knows he is defeated and so now he's trying to bring everybody he can down with him. He's destroyed. He knows he's done for. We've already, we're on this side of the cross. So he knows that's the case. And so now he cannot find any satisfaction in just accepting that. He's trying to destroy the lives of everybody else to bring them down. But the Lord gives Genesis 3.15. And so now if you have your Bibles if you have your little electronic device, you can highlight those things too. If you have all those things, I cannot stress enough the importance of Genesis 3.15 in the scriptures. Remember, the Bible is one book from beginning to end. One story. It's uh, one book, one story with one main author, the Holy Spirit. 40 human authors over 1,400 years, but the Spirit inspires it all. And so it's not just a collection of stories. It's one story that's working from beginning to end. And so if you have one story, the better stories, the better books you read especially, have a thesis statement at the beginning saying, here's what's about to happen. And so what I say oftentimes is that Genesis 3.15 is the thesis of all of Scripture. It's the thesis of all of Scripture. It's what's traditionally been called, and I'll give you a big word because big words get you A's. And when you can use like Latin words, it makes it even better. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium means first gospel, first good news, first promise, right? And so here in Scripture, you have the first message of hope. Sin has come, devastation has entered, and the Lord says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so he says to the serpent, here's what's going to happen. You're going to attempt, you're going to attempt to bring damage. There's going to be a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? You're going to see these two lines going throughout Scripture. And there's going to be a fight between these two. And the serpent may deal a blow to the heel. But we know a blow to the heel isn't devastating. It just does harm. It just hurts. But the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, which we know that means he's going to put him to death. And so ultimately, from Genesis 3.15, all throughout the rest of the Scripture, we are looking for the serpent crusher. We're looking for the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's why when we read Genesis, what happens quickly is we start to see the genealogies happen. What's the next story? Have any of y'all ever read ahead? I mean, I know we've been in Genesis 3 for Y'all been to Genesis 4 ever? You, the very next story is what? You have Cain and Abel. Cain, the seed of the serpent. 
who hates his brother comes to Abel, the seed of the woman who's seeking to do us right. And what does he do? He kills him. He's going after him. In fact, if you look at Genesis, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 12, that's the opposite end. Revelation 12. I preached on this one time. And if you remember, you've got this weird, weird scene going on where the dragon is sitting there. The picture and imagery is pretty graphic. The dragon, which we know it says is the serpent, is sitting there basically like a doctor with the woman who is pregnant waiting for the child to come out. And what is the dragon doing? Looking to devour it, eat it. And so this graphic scene is a picture of what's happened throughout all of Scripture. The seed of the woman is coming out and the serpent's trying to destroy the seed of the woman. The serpent's trying to destroy Why? Because the, if that seed of the woman grows, then the serpent knows what's going to happen. And so here's the serpent in, Genesis, in Revelation 12 saying, looking to destroy it. And so what you see in all of Scripture then is you see this search and you see this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And how is this going to play out? We don't have enough information here to know, but there's some hints, right? We'll get to those hints. Remember, remember that there's three main relationships there in Genesis 1 and 2 that we see that are good. They're in great. They're, they're perfect relationships. You have the relationship between God and man, you have the relationship between man and woman, and you have the relationship between man and the earth, creation. And so what you have next following this, and we'll come back to Genesis 3.15 in just a minute. What you have next following this is you're going to see how all three of those relationships have been devastated by sin. So first, he says the seed of the woman is going to be uh, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Even though the serpent may deal it a blow, the seed of the woman will crush the head. But then he turns to the woman, and look what he says. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Now, that didn't happen. Yeah, it did. Okay, so we, I'm not going to say much about this. Okay, I've learned my lessons on this one. Okay, we have four kids, and yes, it's painful. So... We look at this and we see to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. But what is the Lord saying? What's part of the problem with sin? He says, he says, it's going to be through you having children that salvation is going to come. If you don't have children, the seed of the woman won't be born and salvation won't come. This is why Paul, by the way, in 1 Timothy says women are saved through childbearing. Y'all remember how he says that? You can look it up later, 1 Timothy. What does Paul mean by that? By being by that, Paul is saying that whenever you have a child, you're believing in some sense that promise that even though sin is here, the world is terrible, that God is going to bring salvation through childbearing. It doesn't mean you're saved because you had a bunch of kids. It means you're saved because you believe the promise of God. You believe the promise of God. And so here, ultimately, he's saying to the woman, if you don't have kids, the, the, the serpent crusher is not coming, but having children is going to be painful. So even though, even though through children the serpent crusher is going to come, it's still going to be painful for it to happen. Because of sin, it's going to be painful. 
Because of sin, it's going to be painful. And just think about how that works then. When children are born and you have that pain of childbearing and you have that process that goes on and that difficulty, what it also is is a moment of joy, right? When the child is born, there's that moment of joy. So what it is, is even though you're bringing a child into a sinful world, you have hope that through the birth of a one child, God will crush the head of serpent. And so it's this hope and this joy that you have even through the pain and the suffering. Salvation, I say this over and over again, salvation in so many ways, not just this one, but salvation comes to us through suffering. We oftentimes want to eliminate suffering. We oftentimes want to avoid suffering. Salvation comes to us through suffering. Not just like this in childbearing, but also think of the way that the gospel gets to us or got to us in America or how the gospel gets to hard places and difficult places in the world. The gospel goes forth through suffering. Think about the disciples who became the apostles themselves. They suffered for the sake of the gospel. The gospel gets to us through suffering. We should expect the gospel to go out through, from us through suffering as well. We should expect this. So the Lord says, through a child that's going to be born, it's going to crush the head of the serpent. Victory will come. I will deal with the great disturber of the peace by crushing him and putting him to death, and I'll bring peace. But it's going to be painful, and it's going to be difficult. In pain you shall bring forth children. Then the next half of that verse, verse 16, is important. Uh, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, uh, having preached the gospel in, in, in other places, one of the things you have to do uh, especially in cultures and worldviews that are completely different than ours. And so if you go to South Asia or somewhere, you have a worldview of many gods. They have a different view of creation. They have a different view of everything. So you have to start from the beginning. Let me tell you about the one true and living God who created everything, made everything, and he made it right. And so as we present the gospel in those places, we begin in the beginning. And one of the things that I found helpful is to talk about these three relationships. Everything was good between God and man, between man and woman, between man and the earth. And we talk about how all of those things God created good and then how it was lost. When I get to how we talk about how now there's difficulty between man and woman, everybody starts giggling all the time. They may not understand me. They may not be able to, but I say between man and woman, there's always problems. They're like, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, they all have husbands and wives, right? We know we got to fight. And so everybody sees that this is universal. Well, it goes back to this very problem of sin. And the problem here, it says, you desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. Well, let's look, if we can, to that word desire. What does it mean? It's used in another place in Genesis, and it's just over. In my Bible, just the next column over in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Man, I am, I'm just going to go ahead and warn y'all, I'm going to have to start wearing reading glasses to see this. So if, if I put them on, I got it now, don't, I don't need them. Not if you need them. Cain and Abel. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Verse 7 of chapter 4. If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same word that's used just before. Your desire shall be for your husband. You must rule over it. So this word desire has to do with this ruling, this authority, this power issue. Who is going to win, in other words? And so what's saying, what it's saying here to the woman in Genesis 3 is that you are going to constantly be battling against your husband. You're constantly going to be battling against him as who's in charge. Now you think it's funny, don't you? There's going to be this constant battle between man and woman about where is the authority, where is who's in charge, who has the right, who has this, who has that. It's going to constantly be a battle, and you're going to go after it, and it says there, your husband shall rule over you. You're going to try to rule over him. He's going to try to beat you back. And that's exactly what it says. By the way, this is why the gospel, I think, is a beautiful picture and why God uses marriage to describe the gospel. Because what happens with the gospel is you have a bridegroom, Jesus, who is holy and righteous, and a bride who is the sinful people who has been made right together, and now they're living together, right? You're reversing this very curse. And so God says, that's exactly what this is. And so ultimately, the curse says here to the woman, your desire be for your husband, he shall rule over you. You're going to be battling back and forth. The relationship between man and woman has been broken because of sinful desires, selfishness, and everything else, and it's going to be a problem that only God can fix. That only God can fix. But then he continues to the man. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken and for, the, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Remember, in the garden work was a part of the plan. Adam was to work it and to keep it, to till it, to plant. It brings forth. It brings joy, satisfaction. Finding his joy and satisfaction in the Lord and realizing that through the work of his hands. It's part, of, part in Genesis 1 and 2. After the fall, work becomes difficult. In order to eat before the fall, you till it, you work it, the Lord provides. After it, you're going to fight. You've got to survive, right? And how do we survive? Chick-fil-A. And country-style ham. You know what country can ham? Bacon. Amen. Well, not for, the, not for the Israelites for a while, but <laughs> Lord changed that. Um, Acts chapter 10, just look it up. So you have this, you're going to have to eat. You're going to have to survive. And survival every day is going to be a battle. Because of sin, you're going to fight against thorns. You're going to fight against thistles. You're going to fight against the muscles of your back hurting and aching. You're going to do everything you can to get over that. You're going to invent things like Tylenol just so you can get over the fact that your back aches from working all the time. You're going to do everything you can because now because of sin, now because of sin, you want to eat and eating is not going to be easy. It's going to be a battle. And guess what? You're going to lose. Because you came from dust, and you're going to return to dust. You came from it, you'll return to it. In other words, you're going to be fighting against the earth your entire life to survive. And the earth is going to win. Death is coming. 
So the relationships here are seen. Man and woman, now it is a battle. Now it is a fight because of sinfulness and sinful desires. Man and the earth, now it is a battle. Now it is a fight because you're just wanting to survive, but everything, you've got to battle against this. I walk through my yard. Y'all know those little sand spurs? You can't get rid of those things. That's Adam's fault. You know what I'm saying? And you sit there and you know this is the curse. This is what it is. And so you have this and you have to fight against these things. Why? Because of sin and what happens. This is why Romans 8 says, this is why Romans 8 says that all of earth is groaning, right? Because of the curse that has come, sin has affected the entire cosmos, if you will. It's bringing it all into play. And so all of earth is groaning for the day of redemption. And here we see why. Because Adam and Eve, they've been, they have sinned against God. Now they're cursed. And because of that curse, death has come. And you're going to fight to survive. And you're going to be killed in the end. You're not going to make it. The earth will win. Dust you came, dust you shall return. Man and woman will be a battle. That relationship, husband and wife, and then... Of course, man in the earth will be a battle, will be a battle, and you shall ultimately die. Remember, that's exactly, by the way, what the Lord said, if you eat of that tree, will happen. If you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he says here, this is the case. This is the case. Then, of course, the man and God. But this last half of Genesis 3 is really kind of incredible. Last little bit here. The man called his wife's named Eve, because she will be the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, we could just brush by this, but, but, but biblically, this is a vitally important verse. In this verse, what do we have? We have the first sacrifice. Remember, many people try to say, see there, they didn't die, Right? They didn't die immediately. They ate of it. They didn't die immediately like the Lord said. But something died. Because they sinned, something had to die. And here, um, off the bat, you see God giving them the pattern of what is required to cover their sin. They tried to make clothes out of designer fig leaves. Not appropriate. It's not good enough. The Lord will clothe them. And the only way they're going to be appropriate before God, the only way they're going to stand appropriate before God is if they wear these animal skins, these clothes God has made, and they are covered by this blood sacrifice. Something has to die to make them appropriate before God. Y'all get what I'm saying? Hopefully, hopefully you can draw some lines here, and I don't have to talk to you about Calvary, right? And I don't have to talk to you about how someone had to die in order to make us appropriate before God. And here, already in Genesis 3, you see this substitutionary sacrifice. If they're going to be appropriate before God and God not kill them immediately, then something had to die in their place. And they have to be covered with something that God provides. A righteousness that God provides, if you will. That's the only thing that can make them appropriate before Him. And so God gives them the pattern immediately of what it looks like. If you're going to make it, there's hope, but something's got to die. Something's got to die. And then he says this, and the Lord God said, the, the man, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now he 
lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the God who God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. They were removed from the Garden of Eden. Why? Because of the danger of eating of the tree of life. If they ate of the tree of life, they would remain in their sin forever. Right? That's what he's saying. If you eat of that, you've eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, so now you know what's right and wrong. And now if they eat of the tree of life, then they would remain in their sin forever, and we won't ever be, there's no redemption or hope for them. So he kicks them out of the garden, away from that tree, because he's going to make a better way now, right? And so he kicks them out of the garden, away from the tree, sent them out from over the garden to Eden to work the ground to which he was taken. He drove the man out into the east of the garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So the relationship, the Eden was where God met his people. Now it's lost. His people are no longer allowed in there. His people are no longer allowed to come into his presence. They're no longer allowed to come to him. They've been cut off from that and sent out. And if they want to get back into his presence, they've got to go through a flaming sword. They'll be cut in half, in other words. If they want to get back into his presence, they got to go against that flaming sword. Who can get back into God's presence and go through the flaming sword? Nobody. God's presence has been shut off. It's been cut off from us and protected by a flaming sword. So now no one can get in. No one can get in. I want to go to the next little passage, and we'll come back a little bit to chapter 4 next week. Now Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And killed him. Immediately, the first kids, we see the devastation of sin. That's why I said the good old days were over after Genesis 3. Immediately murder takes place. Immediately you see the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, right? You see the attitude of Cain where he's angry, not repentant. You see the attitude of Abel where he is faithful. You see these two contrasts. But we don't want to bring this up right now. Is because what happens here is also a glimpse of, I believe, how the Lord is going to redeem his people. So why did God have regard for Abel's sacrifice? Abel's sacrifice was an animal. Abel's sacrifice was not just an animal. It was the fat portions. Abel gave God the best, what was required. He gave him the first of his flock. He gave him the best. 
And what did Abel already know through Adam and Eve? Because Adam and Eve had to have told him about it. We see the expectation God has that what kind of offering was expected? An animal sacrifice. Why? Because God already gave them the design for this by killing the two animals and covering Adam and Eve from the beginning. This is what God expects. And so Abel is honoring what God expects from him in a sacrifice. And God says that is good. In order for sacrifice to be there, animals have to die. Something has to die so that you may live. This picture throughout Scripture is going to continue right up until the point of Christ, who had to die so we could live. And so that's what this sacrifice is for. Abel is right. Abel brings his sacrifice in the Scriptures. Who is it that brings a sacrifice? Y'all remember there's three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Who brings a sacrifice? A priest. Abel is the priest who brings the sacrifice. But what is Abel's profession here? A keeper of the flock. He's a shepherd, right? And so here you have a shepherd priest bringing his sacrifice before the Lord. And what happens with Cain? Why was Cain's sacrifice not accepted? It wasn't an animal sacrifice. And you say, well, poor Cain, he's just a farmer. All he's got is some wheat and stuff. I'm sure, don't get me wrong, brothers fight. But I'm sure if Cain would have gone maybe to Abel and said, can I get an animal and let me trade some crops, he would have done it because Cain knew what sacrifice was accepted. He knew what should be happening. Maybe Cain in this time and just got tired of having to go to his brother and get this. Maybe he got frustrated with it. I don't know what it is, but sin is crouching at Cain's door and it was trying to rule over Cain. And Cain came to the Lord and offered up grain and wheat and it has no ability to redeem him from his sins. It's not the sacrifice God requires. And instead of bringing the sacrifice God requires, Cain does what? He rises up and hates his brother. And just like that, quickly in Scripture, the Lord gives us a little glimpse, just a hint, as he does so often. And I'll try to point it out as much as I can. But he gives just a little hint of how he's going to redeem his people. The Lord one day will raise up another shepherd priest, right? Who will be hated by his brothers. And who will kill him? His brothers. And here in this picture in Genesis 4, we get a little glimpse of how the Lord is going to bring redemption through the serpent crusher. It's going to be a shepherd priest who will be hated by his brothers and killed. Jesus is our shepherd priest, right? Our great high priest who is also our good shepherd who offers up a sacrifice for us for our sins because he didn't need to offer up one for himself. So he offers it up for us in our place. And this is not the sacrifice of grain and wheat and some other stuff around the farm. This is a sacrifice of blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, not the blood of any other animals, maybe even here in Genesis 3, because what Hebrews tells us is really those animals couldn't forgive anything. They only pointed to the greater satisfaction, the greater sacrifice that's coming. And so the blood that Jesus offers is the greater sacrifice for us, our brother, who is our shepherd priest, who dies on our behalf, and even though his brothers kill him, he comes back alive and the sacrifice is accepted. In Genesis 3 and 4 here, it's so rich to show us that the curse has come because of sin. And if we look around our creation, everything in Genesis 3 is still true, right? 
we're still battling every day to eat. All of us are getting older and older. I, well, I am. Some of y'all never age. The earth is creeping back on us. And if the Lord tarries, guess what we will turn into? Dust. Dust. The only hope we have, the only hope we have is that the Lord will accept a sacrifice on our behalf. A sacrifice from a shepherd priest. Sacrifice from a shepherd priest. And Genesis 4 teaches us that though all of these relationships are lost, we long for a day when every single one of them will be made right again. We long for a day when this will not be true anymore. And Revelation tells us that the Lord Jesus is making everything new. That's what he's come to do. We'll look further into Genesis 4 next week and see that seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, which really starts to take shape here as we continue. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. We thank you for our shepherd priest, God, who was faithful to offer up sacrifice, a sacrifice that was acceptable, not on his behalf because he was perfect, but on our behalf. And so, God, we come not bringing grain or fruit or anything like that. We come claiming nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ, our shepherd priest. And so, Father, in his name we come before you, and for his glory we live. And so, God, I ask you, I ask you, Father, where sin abounds, may your grace and the blood of Christ abound all the more. And may we all know the forgiveness, the forgiveness that can be found in him and be made appropriate before you through the righteousness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This coming Sunday, Graduate Sunday, just so happens by the grace of God that the commandment is honor your father and mother. And I've got one graduating, so I can't wait for this, okay? So we will see y'all this Sunday. Thank y'all for being here.